This could work. This could be a disaster. That's fine. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to In Situ Science. My name is James O'Hanlon, and this week we're doing things a little bit differently. I'm out in the field, and I'm joined by a ecologist, botanist, and author, Dr. Julia Cook. Julia, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is a very nice way to start a Friday. It is. You're going to be hearing lots of buzzing insects and birds in the background. <laughs> uh, where where are we going, Julia? Uh, well, we're going to maybe find an orchid, but yes. um, we're going down through Lane Cove National Park in Sydney, mm-hmm. um, which is one of my favourite national parks. Delightful wildlife zones. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we just have to go under the yeah, freeway under the first. first. Okay. Um, but no, it's just a really lovely place and we'll go for a walk along the river and if we find some orchids, great. If not, I'll still be very happy. Any orchids in particular? Uh, I'm looking for duck orchid, which is a ridiculous flower that just looks like a duck. Um, and it it's not trying to resemble a duck, it's just <laughs> resembling something else. It now looks like a duck and they're just unbelievably charismatic. Um, so, <laughs> so the <laughs> it duck makes... is just a coincidence. <laughs> yes. I guess we go a bit echoey now. Yes, we're going through a tunnel... Under the motorway. And then we shall emerge into the National Park beauty. And so what's special about these orchids? Um, they just look amazing. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they sort of have, their arrangement of petals um, sort of forms this duck shape. So, uh, so one of the petals makes the head on this little hinge and then the other, some of the other petals sort of hang down. Um, and, and make the body and when an, the right insect comes along and is attracted to the head of the duck it sort of lands on the head and the little hinge swings down and, and sort of traps the insect kind of inside the duck more or less Okay. Um, so yeah they're sort of they're kind of interactive too because you can sort of touch them and they tuck their heads under their wings um, but that feels a bit cruel because they obviously use energy to do that and then recover again um, Strange talking about orchids having heads and wings. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so these are like, deceiving insects, or are they rewarding them? Uh, I think they're deceiving. I, I think I get so taken with the way the flower looks, I never really think about the pollinator. Yeah. Because um, <laughs> they also have like sort of a little, one of the petals kind of does a little curl on the back of their head, so mm-hmm. they're just super cute. Um, and you think, how, why why would this flower (laughs) just look so amazing (laughs) so you're a professional botanist would you call yourself a botanist Mm, no I don't think I'm good enough at plant identification to be a botanist yeah Um, I feel that way about entomology I don't think I count as an entomologist yeah I think sort of to your average person on the street I'm probably a botanist but Mm -hmm. to an actual botanist I'm definitely not I'm a plant ecologist so um, I look at sort of what plants do and how they work um, rather than what type of plant it is and I'm uh, certainly a lot of very good botanists who, um, who leave me for dead in terms of plant identification. So is that what defines a botanist? Is yeah, I think so. Or a systematist, diversity-focused person? Or um, Yes, I feel like a botanist is... Uh, I mean, it doesn't exclude them from looking at plant ecology and things like that but I think a botanist is generally someone who 
who is very good at identifying things and, and knows how species relate to each other mm-hmm. much more than I do. Um, and so what, what do you do as a plant ecologist then? Um, well, I sometimes I call myself a plant functional ecologist. Mm-hmm. So I look at the role that different species play in an ecosystem and and how those species function. So obviously a tree, you could call a tree a functional type because trees are very big and woody and they um, provide shade for other species and they have really deep roots um, and they sort of do one thing in an ecosystem whereas grasses um, sort of a different functional type and play a different role in an ecosystem Mm. and grasses are often um, more similar to each other than trees are than to a tree and then trees are similar so it sort of helps you group things and think about um, species that are similar to each other and and what they do so you're doing this for a job and now you're here sort of in your spare time (laughs) <laughs> still looking for cool interesting plants I mean is this are you just living the dream do you have your dream job <laughs> um I, th- I think there's a fine line between uh work and play yeah you know I think I I'm a scientist be- and, a, and an ecologist because I like the natural world and being in it and understanding it and I I think there's a great line from Attenborough that says I know of no greater pleasure than studying the natural world and understanding how it works and I I feel like that so um, I think in my spare time yes sort of looking at looking at things that I don't study but are equally (laughs) interesting are quite appealing (laughs) well yeah I mean that's a good point because scientists are so specialised a lot of the time that very very a whole lot of knowledge about a very specific thing and not necessarily broad knowledge although you know, there are a lot of insanely intelligent <laughs> scientists out there that just seem to know everything about the world around them yeah and to me a scientist is someone who asks questions and and becomes very skilled at asking interesting and good questions that um, have answers that you know extend what we know mm. so um, I, I guess that's why I'm a scientist because if I, even if I'm on holiday or something and I look out the window, I think, oh, that's a lot of, I'm talking about ducks again, but you know, that, that's a lot of ducks. And I think, well, I wonder what is a lot of ducks? How many is a lot? So I count them. <laughs> I think, right, 21 is a lot of ducks. But anyway, and I, you know, or I sort of, I'll be on a bus trip or something and the vegetation changes and I think, ah, oh, it's changed. Why? <laughs> you know, I just I always want to know how things work or how many or how big or, um, I like measuring stuff. Almost like a Zen meditation question. Yeah. How many is a lot of ducks? Yes, that's right. What's <laughs> or what do I consider a lot of ducks? Um, yeah, yeah, I mean, I feel like people assume that I'm smart because I do science. But I never particularly feel that way because your entire career is spent listing all the things you don't know. <laughs> and you just feel a little bit lost and... <laughs> Like you haven't learnt anything yet. Well, I guess that's what happens when you ask questions, isn't it? For every answer that you get, it brings up a lot more questions and you think, oh, so have I achieved anything if I've just got more questions than when I started? Mm. But of course you have, because now you've got more information that lets you get to the next lot of questions. Mm, and it's the questions that are important. Yeah. Right, you know, the, the knowledge is not necessarily science. The knowledge is, is bookkeeping <laughs> in a lot of ways. It's yeah. 
scientists more asking the questions than just having a encyclopedia of knowledge yes. at your fingertips. Yes, it's, and it's sort of knowing what's out there to know in a way. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can always look up a periodic table, but knowing there's a periodic table and how it's arranged and what it tells you is, is useful knowledge, but remembering the order of everything maybe isn't mm. as critical um, because you can look it up. Oh, but just a little. Oh, wow. Very red. Yeah, that blue is amazing. <laughs> Has it got a red on its shoulder? Uh, yeah, like a ready brown. Yeah, so that's patch. not a superb. What does that make it? Something else? Uh, mediocre. Uh, <laughs> it's another thing that I always feel terrible about, you know, talking about having specific knowledge, is that I still walk around and in my own study sites and see things that I have no idea <laughs> what they are. Um, yes, that happens all the time. And when, when I moved to the UK sort of a couple of years ago, I suddenly went, I don't know what anything is anymore. <laughs> um, I, I sort of got to the stage here in Sydney where I could name a bunch of trees and grasses and various other things and birds. And then suddenly I get to the UK and I go, is that a stoat or a weasel? Um, <laughs> is, okay, I know that's an oak, but what sort of oak? How many types of oaks are there? And you're suddenly completely out of your depth again. Mm. And that's, that's quite exciting, really. <laughs> I mean, so you started off your scientific career in Australia, and now you've moved over to the UK. Is that an exciting or daunting scientifically? Because I feel like the UK has been a hub for scientists for a very long time. (laughs) Surely everything's been done, right? Um. (laughs) Because in Australia, you sort of have your pick of anything to work on, really. There's still so much... Yes. Unexplored. Yeah, but I think I mean, in the UK there's um, uh, there's less biodiversity, obviously, than in Australia. It's tiny, mm-hmm. um, and it was covered in ice until comparatively recently. So mm-hmm. um, the amount of time it's had to colonise and, and things like that are very different, and it's had people, a lot more people on it. So um, it's, it is less diverse, but it's also so well studied that that's brilliant. You know, there's great databases about when butterflies have emerged and mm. where um, different plants occur. And um, so when you when you see something interesting, there's loads of information for you, but there's still so many questions. I mean, yeah. it's, there's, I don't think we'll ever run out of questions about plants and animals and, <laughs> and how they interact with each other. Yeah. I imagine it would feel sort of warm and fuzzy going <laughs> back to the home of such classic ecology and biology, right? I mean, I'd, when I did my field work in this peninsular Malaysia, and being able to go back and read Wallace's books and hear him talk about all the places that I'm going, it felt almost like I was carrying on some great noble <laughs> lineage. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I'm always uh, astounded by... Um, by people's generosity. Like, I, sometimes I feel like I'm the new kid on the block and I've just kind of walked in and said, I'm going to work on this. Yeah. And, and nobody ever says, oh, that's my patch or, well, or anything did. like that. People just sort of say, oh, that sounds interesting. Now, you should talk to so-and-so. They know a bit about this. And um, I've I found, you know, the ecology community in the UK just enormously welcoming and interesting. <laughs> and, and I think there's more of a tradition of... Um, uh, sort of natural history by the public so there's yeah. lots of um, programs 
I can't think of the names of any right now, but um, that that monitor birds in a square mile or have followed um, you know, butterfly emergence over many years and things. So there's, there's sort of more awareness in the public, I think. Perhaps because of the lower biodiversity in that, you know, you see a bird and you can usually, it's a robin mm. or a magpie or a... Or, or something, whereas here it's, it can be a bit harder. Um, it's kind of interesting because now in Australia we're seeing such a, a push for what we call citizen science. Mm. These outreach programs, there's lots of funding going towards getting everybody involved in science like it's a brand new revolutionary thing, but really it's kind of where it all started. Yeah, I think so. I think, I mean, it's, it's about being curious and um, and wanting to know more. I, I, there's, yeah, there's a lot of citizen science projects in the UK, and the, the Open University where I work has um, a number of them that are, I think, are quite clever in that they they aim to give the citizen um, something and some knowledge and um, to answer some of their questions, mm-hmm. as well as um, give a whole lot of information to, um, well, data to scientists to play with as well. So I was going to ask about your new university. Mm-hmm. It's called the Open University. And from what you've told me about it, it sounds a little bit edgy, <laughs> modern. Yeah. It's, What's the story? Um, it, it is a, a very different sort of university. And it's, um, I've really enjoyed being part of it and getting to understand it. I still feel quite new. But it's... Um, so it's a distance education university. There's mm. no undergraduates on campus. Occasionally they come and do um, like prac classes or something, mm-hmm. but mainly it's it used to be through beautiful publications, books, and now it's through um, websites where we can um, we can have videos and um, is that a bellbird? Is that a minor? No, it's not a minor. Mm. If it is, if it is. Um, you can definitely um, hear them. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so we can sort of make interactives and work with graphic designers and production companies to make videos and things like that um, for There's our no students. There's no grand lecture halls or no, classrooms? It's no, not that sort of university? No, not at all. And... And as much as our the university and the campus is quite unusual in that there's there's only kind of staff mm-hmm. and postgraduate students, the students themselves are are quite extraordinary too because they they study at the Open University for a reason. Um, mm-hmm. They for for whatever reason a, a conventional university doesn't suit what they need. Yeah. Um, and so I. When, we, when I teach on field schools and things and I get a chance to talk to students, I just, I'm fascinated by their stories and why they're studying at the Open University. And they, they all really want to study. Yeah. There's very few people who are there who are just for, for sort of, just because they don't know what else to do. They're, they're really keen to learn, just for the sake of learning. Or they're, they're really looking for a, a career and a new path. Mm. So they're... So it's not like... You don't have that sort of stigma around, I don't know, getting an online degree. No, not at all. You're not taking the easy way out. No, no, not at all. Um, And we have uh, all of our modules and things are assessed by someone external to check and make sure that they're equivalent to at a conventional university because we very much don't want that to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, 
One, the, it's called the Open University though because it is open to anyone. Yeah. So you don't have to have finished high school All right. or anything like that to go to the Open University. Um, and so sometimes we have people who haven't studied for many years or left school for whatever reason and now coming back to to study or just simply studying something new. Mm-hmm. Um, and that does mean sometimes that in the in the sort of first year of the degree. There's a really steep learning curve mm-hmm. because perhaps, particularly in the sciences, people don't have the math skills or the study skills that they would have if they'd come straight from high school. Yeah. So there's this really steep learning curve in sort of the first half of the degree and then the second half of the degree to me feels much more like a conventional university because they're up to speed. So the students are pretty amazing that they, they take this on and they handle learning everything you'd learn at a conventional university and more yeah um i i think and it's a challenge to write and prepare material for that yeah um yeah i was gonna ask about that how does this affect how you teach usually you know you're introduced to university teaching by standing up and giving lectures <laughs> and running lab classes that's yes. all gone so <laughs> yeah, well, how do you how do you get that connection with your students then? Well, it's it's sort of it's not that different in that you're always when you're teaching all teachers. It's not about you. It's yeah. not about you going. I've got all this information to give. It's always about the student. What do they need to know? It's reassuring to... that you recognise that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you're sort of putting yourself in their shoes and thinking, right, to get to the next stage, they need to know this about chemistry. They need to know that about biology. Um, and, and our, our success as teachers, I suppose, is about how well we can explain that and how clearly, and to take all of the bits of information and put it together in a story that, that makes sense to us and that we think explains something that can be very complicated Mm. in a, in a clear way. It's not about dumbing anything down. It's just about using analogies or, or whatever, um, and I think I'm really glad I started with face-to-face teaching because I try and recreate those situations for online students because mm-hmm. um, I love it in a lecture where you sort of get to that point and reveal you know, the conclusion <laughs> to something and you hear this, oh, or you're in a practice yeah, class and you show feedback. something and, and you hear this, oh, no. And, you, you know, you, you, or, or you're explaining something to a student, suddenly the penny drops and you think, good got you you know and I try and recreate that online so you sort of give people lots of different bits of information in a in a manageable way and then kind of bring it together so they go all right I see how this fits together yeah I can I've got the skills to put this together and make this product that's mine yeah and is original but I've you know I can see where all the information that I've been taught fits into this that actually sounds like a real fun challenge is to make something that's on one hand accessible to absolutely everyone but then also create something that people can appreciate as a personal journey yes that they're on yeah i think so identify with it and and i always picture the open university students as at home by themselves because that's often where they are or Hmm. you know they're at work or something um and so they, they might have just, lots of the students work full-time or part-time, so they've just worked a full day, they've cooked dinner, 
maybe just put the kids to bed and then they start studying. <laughs> mm. So I've got to give them something pretty exciting. Yeah. And and if if they encounter something that they don't understand or that isn't clear in a conventional uni, they'd stick their hand up and go, I don't get it. Yeah. What do I do? Whereas here, well, which way we should go? Hmm. Maybe keep going this way. We're at a fork in the road. We're making a decision. <laughs> Let's go this way. Um, so I sort of imagine someone sitting there and I don't want them to get frustrated and, and think, well, where's that bit of information? This is hard. Oh, no, it's not hard. It can be hard, but I think they need to not have so many questions that they don't want to continue. Mm-hmm. So it's trying to preempt where they might get frustrated. I mean, I want them to think, oh, how do I do this? I need to really concentrate and get get into it that's fine that's mm. great um but if they think oh, i just don't know where this resource is and i can't do this and it's horrible they've got no support right then um so i mean these are important questions because is this the way that tertiary education is going yeah i i don't know is it all going should, online or perhaps i should just say the students of the AU do have support they have great tutors and, <laughs> and all sorts of things that are amazing. I wouldn't want to imply that, but sometimes at that very minute, there's yeah. no one that they can say. Um, I'm just wondering, maybe that's the track up to the duck orchids, but I'm kind of liking just walking along here. <laughs> yeah, I kind of forgot we we're looking for stuff. What yeah. am I actually looking for? Um, so, the orchids are about uh, maybe 20 centimetres high. Mm-hmm. Maybe there's a small, sort of thin grass-like leaf. Yep. And then a spike with a flower spike with a bunch of what look like small ducks sitting on top. Of it. <laughs> so um, it's a, gr- a flock. We're looking for a flock yeah, of ducks. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I took this great photo that I gave to my sister. And it's three of these duck orchids. <laughs> and she's got it on her wall. Like I said, of the three. Um, That's great. Those terracotta ducks. She's got three orchids three. on her wall. I <laughs> might have to go home and make that. That would be <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> Wall sculpture. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the ducks here in Sydney are, um, are pretty um, cute and chubby looking, and then there's some other species where they look a bit um, thin and scrawny, and like they <laughs> haven't found any food for a bit. They're ugly ducklings. <laughs> yes. Orchids. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, the orchids seem to like kind of semi disturbed areas, so mm-hmm. a kind of bit of a patch of. Um, you know, sort of sandy area that maybe was disturbed last year. And I think I read they flower um, for a couple of years and then they've used up their reserves and they have to kind of either recuperate or um, die. This is old stilidium um, flowers. Do you know trigger plants? No. So um, these are finished, unfortunately, but they have they have a great pollination system. So they have... Uh, here the flowers are pink, mm-hmm. and when an insect puts its proboscis into the middle of the flower, this little hammer goes bam, ah, yeah. and bonks them on the head with um, so is that, all is this that a pollen. hammer orchid? Have you heard of no, orchids, it's not. A, it's or? not an orchid. Okay. Um, I don't know what family it is actually, but the the genus is Stylidium. There's a couple of species um, in Sydney, and there's like a million in Western <laughs> Australia, and they have these sort of four petal flowers, and then the hammer gradually resets itself. But yeah. There, yeah, you can get a little tiny stick and, and set off the hammer. Um, and I saw some in Oberon the other day. 
and something had eaten all the seeds. But these seem to be uneaten. They had bright pink seeds too. <laughs> tiny little bright pink ones. Yeah. Um, and I read too that they're supposed to have sort of carnivorous hairs on them. A bit like a drosser or a, right. um, a sundew, but I don't know. Ah, oh, here's... Flowering. No, it's something else. Um, it'd be fun to show you the, the little triggers, but we might be a bit late. Um, we were talking about universities Online education. going. Yeah. Because it's there's definitely a push for it to go that way, and I think there's a lot of sort of instinctive resistance sometimes amongst the people teaching it because. I mean, there's a personal level to it. You know, I really enjoy teaching because mm. of the connection yeah, and with other people. Yeah, the buzz you get after a great tutorial <laughs> or something. It's just yeah. it's magic. And also, I just really enjoyed my time as a student going to a university, sitting in lecture halls, being part of the university community. Mm. And I guess there's that fear that that experience won't be there anymore if everything's by distance and by correspondence. Yes, I, I agree and I, I love my undergrad. I loved going to lectures and then going for coffee and having a big argument with another student about <laughs> why something was so and how it worked and, yeah. and all sorts of things. Uh, so this, this is an orchid pod. This is a um, uh, dipodium or something like that. It's a spotted orchid. Again, it's finished. You can see all the pods. But, all right. Um, so these are the little fruiting... Yeah, Bits. yeah, and orchids have ridiculously tiny seeds, so mm -hmm. they sort of just blow away like dust. Um, but these are lovely. They're they're sort of they're very showy with kind of pale cream with big pink spots, and you think they'd stand out a mile, but they're they're surprisingly hard to spot. But we seem to be just a little late, maybe because it's been so hot. Mm. Um, things might have just sort of gone a bit faster than normal. But that's definite orchid sighting. Okay. So we can be, um, we can be happy. The, the ephemeral, elusive side of orchids definitely increases their appeal. Yes. Doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> they sort of, I mean, it, you can find orchids um, in, in lots of ecosystems. And there, I went up to Matt's field site last week and um, I found an orchid. And it was, wasn't too hard, but they're... They're just rare enough to be so exciting. <laughs> they're just common enough that you don't get so frustrated that you never see them. Mm. Um, they just seem to, <laughs> to fit beautifully. Um, I feel like I feel like I'm seeing lots of old friends seeing all these species <laughs> <I've seen. laughs> um, since I was in Australia last night. Oh, there's the mandra. Oh, hello. Isn't that terrible? <laughs> um, but yeah, online education, I mean, I think, I think that sense of community and sharing ideas and discussing things is, is, is always going to be critical because it's such a fundamental part of doing science. You can, sure, one person can do a lot of good science, but with ideas from other fields and um, being challenged in what you found and asked to, to provide evidence and all those sorts of things and, and make an argument about something and be logical in, in that argument is, is critical. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there's different ways of, of doing that. We're used to doing that in a lecture or a tutorial or 
meeting after class, but you know, there's forums and Twitter feeds and mm. um, quite a few students set up Facebook pages um, independently of, <laughs> of the Open University sort of stuff and you, you can, I mean, they could be full of people complaining, but the ones I've seen are actually students supporting each other and, and saying, oh, I couldn't find these notes, no, don't worry, they're here and, um, well, I mean, that's... you know, everyone coming up with five questions and then testing each other mm. and... I mean, we've seen in all other areas of the internet that one of the things it does best is creating vibrant communities. And I think we forget that in education sometimes, that that maybe is the key. And that's what we should be promoting. I mean, there are all, all sorts of different interest groups already online doing it themselves. I mean, as a completely... Unrelated example, I remember it was really eye-opening whenever I heard about how important uh, the Huggies website is to new mothers. And I remember my sister telling me about it when she had her first kid, that she was just so isolated. Mm -hmm. She was at home by herself all the Mm -hmm. time, Mm -hmm. looking after this little pink pudgy thing. (laughs) Something that you can't really prepare for. Yeah, and she just found herself being drawn towards these online communities where she could talk to people in similar situations that had similar mindsets. Yes, and, and, and immediate needs. And, <laughs> and you, you can actually make genuine human connections this way. And that was really eye-opening and, and heartwarming to hear mm. that that's possible. So maybe is that the way that... We need to be encouraging this sort of online collaborative education. Yeah, and I think I think maybe it's teaching people how to find information and how to assess that information um, is becoming more important than um, than just oh, passion fruit. <laughs> <laughs> That's um, a bit unexpected. I'm not sure. Uh, not, not native? No, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> they look pretty good. Maybe we should pick them on the way back. Might be doing place a favour. Um, you know, so if they Google something mm-hmm. and find some information, how will they evaluate whether that's a good information source, how believable it is, and and that sort of idea of not believing everything you read, um, and and how to question it, how to how to find it again, how to cite it. Um, I think that's an important part of our teaching now. Very topical, given all the emphasis on fake news. At the moment, I actually saw a really uh, nice tweet the other day mm-hmm. by, I want to say, Terry Gwynn, probably getting it wrong, <laughs> and all it said was that you know, if you educate people about science, then automatically they're going to get education as to how to spot fake news. Right. Science is all just about yeah, yeah. evidence yes. and assessing it. And I think, you know, if you, if you get something that's come from an absolute expert that's, you know, so highly researched and backed up and everything else and you question it mm. and just sort of go through your head, you know, is this right? Why do I believe this? Where does it come from? Um, what's the evidence? Do I believe it? That's going to do you no harm if you, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you question something that's true and if you question something that's untrue and you think, I'm, I'm not convinced by this because of... Um, because this is just from one person's perspective or they've only interviewed one person or 
it just seems to be something someone's made up and I don't believe it or it doesn't make sense given what else I know. Mm. You know, if you question everything. It's a good skill set. Yeah. I I just stopped here because this is kind of classic um, Sydney site. So we've been walking Mm -hmm. through this great sort of bushland on Hawkesbury sandstone soil, um, which has got ridiculously low phosphorus levels. Um, and then we've come to this sort of little gully and it's suddenly mm-hmm. a different kind of green and most of these are exotic species. Okay. Um, so there's a sort of a tobacco plant and this is a solanum that's introduced and I think it's the vines delaria and oh, I can't remember the genus name for this one, but these are all invasive species in this little gully where the stormwater comes in off the suburbs, off right. the road. So we have sort of elevated nutrients, Yeah. which is not really... A an Australian thing to have lots of nutrients in the soil. No, particularly So we've got lots of invasives <laughs> popping up just in this little gully here. Yeah, yeah, so it's a sort of, yeah, you just sort of come from native bushland through a big patch of exotics and then back into native bushland as you go up the rise again. Um, and you, it's very difficult to, to rehabilitate an area like this because you have to remediate the soil as well ah. as actually removing the biomass and lots of these weeds produce revolting quantities of seeds <laughs> so, <laughs> um so yeah they're quite quite hard to control but there's i mean there's a few little natives this is a nice little basket grass and stuff so there's there's lots of things there's tree ferns obviously um but it's yeah it's just a, a textbook <laughs> um <laughs> textbook case of an invasive patch yeah. and then you know what 20 steps up the hill it's back to being nice, normal bushland. So it's lovely walking along, talking and getting this insight into the little world that you're in. <laughs> and it's reminding me to ask you about the book that you wrote, ah. titled My Little World. Yeah. Um, so It's a kid's book? It is Tell a kid's book. It. Um, so it began as my year 12 English assignment. Okay. Um, <laughs> And, oh, lizard. Um, And uh, so, yes, I wrote this story about something that happened to me when I was little because my dad's a biologist and we spent lots of our holidays camping and things like that. And he would see, he works on mammals, so he would always see the big stuff. He could see a roo, you know, kilometres away. And my mum was a birdo, so she would always see this tiny bird through her binoculars on a branch. And when you're two, that's hard. Because <laughs> you're not very tall. Yeah. And your hand-eye coordination is not great for binoculars just yet. Yeah. Um, so while they'd see this big stuff, I'd spot like a spider that was two millimetres wide on a leaf. <laughs> and I'd see all these things that were, you know, really close to the ground, really tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, but it wasn't easy for my parents to see because their knees don't work like a toddler's anymore. <laughs> so... So it was a really lovely experience both for my sister and I as kids and my parents because we saw this sort of whole new world, a mm-hmm. little world, um, through the eyes of small children. So I wrote about that in, in verse and I got a good mark. <laughs> and a friend of mine said, you should try and publish it. And I went, I don't think so. <laughs> and she said, no, it's a really good story. Um, and I really like reading it. I think it would make a good book. So um, I got online and I researched what you do to submit a, a manuscript to a, a publisher. And I, um, 
I chose a publisher that I really admired and liked, um, and and they liked it. Great. And they sent me a contract, and suddenly I was about to be a published author. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's got to be a miracle, right? Usually, yeah. Sort of uncommissioned submissions just get ignored, right? Yeah, they sort of sit in a slush pile and then get sent back after a long time. So I was incredibly lucky. And obviously a skilled writer. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I, I, it was a story that meant something to me, I yeah. think. Um, and then I was even luckier because the illustrator that the publishers chose, um, she's also Sydney-based, actually. Her name's Marjorie Crosby Farrell. She had done quite a few scientific illustrations for things like the Murray-Darling Basin Commission and, and various other stuff. And she just does most beautiful pictures Mm -hmm. and they're all real species um in my book they're all from um black mountain in canberra and they all look like they do in october so (laughs) (laughs) that's important yeah so it's like the right time and place because uh the book argues that um detail is important and the small small things that you see are important and so um was really important to me and and thankfully to Marjorie that the the details were right. You know, it's not a random beetle with spots on it. Mm. It's a proper one. And there's we snuck in a few species that aren't described yet. Um, <laughs> and, and I love doing the research for it because I could write to the, the beetle expert and say, I need a beetle that would be here at this time. And I wrote to the snail guy and I wrote to the millipede woman and... And so I, you know, explained what I was doing and asked for a particular species, and they'd send me back. Ecologically accurate. Oh, yes, sorry, I spotted an orchid. Oh. Oh. Can you see? So this is Cryptostylus erecta. Ah, all right. Um, now, these guys are cool. Tell me about Cryptostylus. Ah, uh, so these, actually, you had a previous guest who used to study these. Yes. Gasket. Um... And these are sexually deceptive orchids, so they attract... And they just spotted an ant-mimicking spider. That's <laughs> cool. <laughs> we may not say anything now for a while. Ah, oh, yeah. Oh, it's good. Oh, no, no, I see. Is it? Could be an ant. <laughs> <laughs> an excellent mimic. <laughs> well, so, so the orchids mimic too. So they mimic um, a female wasp uh, that normally climbs to the top of a... A stem and hangs out there releasing pheromones and attracting a male wasp to come and pick it up and mate with it so that it can lay eggs and the orchid pretends to be that female so the male comes in thinking wow this is like a really super hot female <laughs> um, and and tries to mate with the orchid and in that way it picks up pollen um, and then gets fooled again yeah. and, and pollinates so so yeah there's you can see there's loads and loads of leaves here and only some of them um, a flowering, but there's I can see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven flower spikes. Um, well, you're doing better than me. I can see three. <laughs> and there's I spotted a couple over through there. Um, so yeah, they're lovely. Well, to look at them, they don't look like a wasp. So when no. you say they resemble a female. Yeah. So so Anne's work, she's her PhD thesis was this beautiful piece of work where she looked at because um, there's four Cryptostylus species that are all um, pollinated by the same wasp, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So I shared an office with her, and so this has sort of been absorbed through osmosis. <laughs> <laughs> um, so she she measured their colour and their smell and their shape. Yeah. Um, and I think it was the colour and the smell that most resembled the female. The shape um, was was sort of a bit less important. And these are sort of they're called um, I think they're slipper orchids. And they sort of look like this sort of hood, which mm-hmm. isn't very female-like, but perhaps the patterning inside looks like a female wasp. Mm. Um, and the crazy thing is all four species of orchid look completely different, but they all mimic the same wasp. Mm. So, um, mm. well, You can go back and listen to the episode <laughs> with Dr. Anne Gasket. I will, I will. Full story. <laughs> <laughs> and I've become interested in the orchids in the UK because there's a... Um, there's orchids that occur in the UK and also in continental Europe, mm-hmm. but they have different pollinators. So the pollinators, some of the pollinators didn't make it to the UK. Um, so they have, the orchids are trying to mimic different things in two places that are quite close together. Mm. And I think there's interesting questions to ask there. Um, so. Maybe I'll get a photo of these guys on the way back. Yeah. Share it up with the podcast. <laughs> But still no ducks yet. No, still no ducks. Look at them all. Now keep in mind, I've recently got a reputation for (laughs) making study species disappear. (laughs) So so the fact we're actually looking for duck orchids might bring out that effect. Well, I think I saw the duck orchids here probably five or six years ago. Mm. Um, So I don't know. (laughs) I don't know where to find them exactly. I think it was up sort of one of the little steep tracks that are maybe not so conducive to talking. <laughs> <laughs> Very breathy, um, sweaty podcast. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know, but, you know, they could be kind of anywhere. Sometimes the side of tracks are perfect because they've just got that bit of disturbance where the occasional person sort of goes off the track, but they don't have compacted soil or... Or anything like that. Oh, there's more slipper orchids up in there. Yeah. They're everywhere. Now, once you get your eye in, yes. Spot them. My family call it, we count orchids per day, so a, a one orchid day is a pretty good day, but like a seven <laughs> orchid day is an amazing day. And that's seven species. The new measurement, OPD. Yes. Day. <laughs> good, I like it. And my, um, my parents gave me when I moved to the UK a kind of weekend trip with a, a guide um, who who knows quite a bit about orchids and I took, saw 22 species in two days. I was in heaven. <laughs> I don't even study orchids, I just really like them. Well, while you were here in Australia, being a plant ecologist, mm-hmm. you carved out your own little niche looking at silicon yeah. plants and... I was um, you know, amazed to find out that this is a really underappreciated part of plant biology and the fact they have silicon in their tissues. What's, what's so interesting about that and why is it important? Um, yeah, this so is taking you a while back. So <laughs> it is. Back. Well, I, can, I guess the story starts for me was in undergrad. So I did an art science degree and in the arts bit I was doing archaeology and anthropology mm-hmm. and in the science bit I was doing anything that had the word plant in it. Um, and, and in the archaeology unit, one of the essays I wrote was how are phytoliths used in paleo-environmental reconstruction? 
which means how our plant silica bodies, or these little depositions of silica in a plant... So is that what a phytolith yeah, is? Yeah, it means plant stone. Mm-hmm. Um, how they use to recreate past environments, because this, this silica is, is more durable than the organic or the carbon part of the plant. So when a plant dies, mm-hmm. the carbon kind of composts, more or less, mm-hmm. and the silica can persist for a long time. So if you take soil core you can look for these little phytoliths or plant stones and they have specific shapes for different species or different families. And so you can see what vegetation was there in the past. So this this is a structure within a living plant? Yeah, yes. And what's it doing when it's alive? Do we know? Um, Kind of. (laughs) So so in this, to write this essay, I thought, oh, I'm going to nail this. I'm just going to go over to the science library and learn all about plant silicon and then I'll nail the arts essay. (laughs) Um, but there really was very little information Um, in in the science literature there was sort of you know kind of a handful of studies from from the sort of the 60s and 70s Um, and I thought huh we don't know what this does and and so when I came to do a PhD I got the opportunity to sort of ask those questions and and in the last sort of 20 years there's been an explosion of research into plant silicon um, so plants take up silicon from soil as silicic acid, mm-hmm. and then they deposit it wherever they want. Um, and so there's um, some plants have transporters or sort of these little um, membrane aquaporins that take up the silicon. So tubes. some tubes, tubes. yes, good. <laughs> um, and so things like grasses often accumulate quite a lot of silicon. Um, mm-hmm. Horse tails, some people might know, equisetum, they can be up to 10% of their dry mass. So if you pick the plant and dry it out in the oven, 10% of that mass can be silicon okay. or silica. And this is structural? Yeah, I think um, it has a bunch of functions. Mm-hmm. Um, so sort of thinking as a functional ecologist, it has three main functions. One is as a structural component, but I think we don't really know that much about how it functions structurally it's sort of lots of papers say it's a structural component mm-hmm. but it's really measured we don't really understand how it affects leaf biomechanics and things like that um, the second is as a herbivore defense mm-hmm. so grasses accumulate lots of silicon and it's considered um lizard just spotted a water dragon yeah he's looking very proud of himself Strangely enough, I have an episode about Ah. (laughs) a guy who studies water dragons. (laughs) Is it a male or female? It looks female-y. Okay. She's looking proud of herself then. She should be starting to show her bright red chest and things. Or if it was a male, that's what we'd be seeing. But she's a female, so I'll tell James that they're here. (laughs) Uh, It's not frightened. You're going to walk right past and you're not going to move. Maybe it's... Had someone catch it before and has figured out it's better to stand still. Rage lizards, James called. <laughs> Rage lizards. Leave her alone. <laughs> uh, structural yeah. uh, herbivore defense. So grasses and things have a lot of silica in them and it can wear down the mouth parts of invertebrates, so insects and things. Um, and it can reduce how much nitrogen a mammal can get out of the vegetation. So... Mm-hmm. Um, it's quite an important herbivore defence. Lots of spines and spikes and leaf hairs on, on various plants are full of um, silicon. 
and um, sorry, I distracted by another plant. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it has different functions, and the the final one is it seems to help plants manage stresses, um, particularly um, non biological stresses like salinity or drought or mm-hmm. high temperatures, heavy metals. So it's becoming um, a more popular fertilizer for agricultural okay. plants, and lots of our key important crops are, are grasses um, that accumulate quite a lot of silicon. So rice is a big accumulator, um, wheat, barley, uh, sugar cane, all use silicon. So the agricultural sector is interested in, in plant silicon use and how to, to get plants to take up more silicon and how it can help them. And to me it's interesting because it's in, when we think about plants, we often think about carbon and you know photosynthesis fixing carbon dioxide into sugars and starches and things that we depend on as our food source um, and so do most animals Um, and so plants think of carbon and nitrogen and phosphorus and and these things but I I think we need to add silicon into this mix because it's you know it's it's everywhere all soils are chock full of silica whether Mm. it's available to the plant or not is different but um yeah, I think it's it's really interesting to see how plants use this resource, and, and it's a fairly new field. Next frontier. Yes. Well, we still haven't found the duck orchid. No. I think we're running out of time. Our quarter is probably <laughs> about to kick conch out. Right. So, if people wanted to find your book, check in libraries and things. Yeah, so it's in a lot of Australian libraries. It's out of print. You can't buy it anymore, but mm-hmm. there's certainly lots of copies in libraries. Um, and Marjorie has um, a number of other books that are beautifully illustrated that people might enjoy as well. Okay. And then people can check out your website? Yes. JuliaCook.net. Mm-hmm. And, and you're on Twitter and yeah, those things. I think I'm Cook Julia there. Okay. There's another Julia Cook in who writes about Cuba. Oh, so dear. if you don't find me, you'll find her, and she's pretty good too. <laughs> <laughs> I just got followed on Twitter by another James O'Hanlon. Oh, uh, <laughs> doesn't seem like we have anything in common but the name (laughs) (laughs) all right we're gonna keep looking but we should sign off thanks so much for coming on the podcast julia um check in situ science out on twitter and handle at in situ science or the website in situ science.com you can subscribe on itunes or stitcher or whatever uh, podcast app you have thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time